Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, and we'll continue our series through this book. If you uh, don't happen to have a Bible with you, there should be one at the end of the pew that you can grab. Joshua is that sixth book of the Bible. We're in chapter 7, and as our pattern has been for the last uh, few weeks, we will read uh, most of this chapter, and, and I just want to pause here, I guess, and, and commend you all for hanging with it over the last few weeks. These are sizable chunks of Scripture that we're working through, probably more than maybe we're used to wrestling with on a Sunday morning, some of them more than I'm used to preaching through on a Sunday morning. Uh, thankfully, they've been simultaneously uh, some of the most interesting parts of scripture that we've looked at so i think they're engaging for us and today will be interesting perhaps in a in a different sort of way in a in a pretty challenging kind of way in a difficult way but whether you're here and you're young or you're old or you've been in church for a while or you're relatively new to the scriptures uh, certainly takes some focus i realize that each week as we walk through a, a book like this so I encourage you to press on through with me today. I'll give you this little bait, this little lure that's out there as well. Next Sunday, we'll be delighted to have uh, back with us our former assistant pastor, Lanier Wood, is going to come and share God's Word with us. And he's covering just five verses in chapter 8. So if you feel like you've been under the weight of these long chapters each Sunday, we'll uh, breathe a little breath of air next, uh, next week. I'll let you remain seated uh, as I read this. Chapter 7, a convicting, challenging, and maybe in some ways confusing passage that I look forward to us having a chance to walk through this morning. Joshua chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. That's a summary statement introducing now what's going to be shared in a more specific format, starting in verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. The men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, don't have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand go up to attack I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they, the Israelites, fled before the men of I. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sherebim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought us, brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say? 
when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. And jumping down to verse 15. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. And he and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he's done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning, brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the men of Jude, the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son... Give glory to the Lord God, that means tell the truth, and give praise to Him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted. Then I took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, they ran to the tent, behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath, and they took them out of the tent, and brought them to Joshua, and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them before down before the Lord, and Joshua and all Israel with them took Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his donkeys, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor, and Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from the burning, from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, indeed, again this week we have before us a passage that is difficult for us to receive, difficult for us to even understand in some ways. And Father, you know 
I feel the burden of both accurately and truthfully proclaiming your word here and also, Lord, displaying your grace and kindness as we know is revealed in your word. And so I ask, Lord, that you would help me and help us in the next few minutes to receive what you have for us from this passage, even if we find it difficult to digest. We ask that you'd help us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. On June 19, 1953, two U.S. citizens were executed by the United States government for spying on their own country during what could be termed a time of war. To this day, their names are synonymous with international espionage and its sometimes horrible consequences. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Why such a severe punishment for this couple? Well, they hadn't merely been passing any information along to any nation. They had, in fact, been communicating extensively with America's chief Cold War rival, the Soviet Union, and sharing the backbone of American military strength, that information about the atomic bomb. Even today, decades removed from a Cold War mindset, as I imagine most of us here are, we can understand the, the seriousness, the severity of the matter. How could America continue to extend and expand and defend the freedom it believed in if its whole military strength was undercut, undermined? I think this lens will help us apply a bit to this passage and understand the uh, violence, the force of what takes place here a bit. And I'll say I'm admittedly unsure about the propriety of comparing the divine to an atomic weapon, but I hope you'll bear with me. God is the powerful force behind the nation-state Israel's success. They can't take a step forward in military conflict without them. It's displayed clearly in our passage. And therefore, this helps us understand the passage, I think, anyone or any entity in their midst that serves to undermine, to remove from their life the work and the power of God... That cheap weapon, if you will, chief weapon, if you will, is not just a person who's uh, sinning individually against God or even some way offending the whole body, but in fact is undercutting their whole mission, their whole goal as the people of God at this time. It's a treasonous act. Well, this doesn't 
assuage all of the difficulties with this passage today. We're going to try to walk through some of the other ones that we see here. But hopefully it gives us a little foothold, a little starting point to open our minds up a bit. And I'll ask you to do that with me today to receive what this message has, not just as something from the Old Testament, not just as some particularly quirky or violent passage, but as something that has relevance for us today. And I think it's in this way. That although certainly our application of any force in the church is merely spiritual, merely the words we speak and the prayers we offer and the verbal direction and correction that we give, it's not anything physical, it's nevertheless as vitally important that we as a church live out lives individually of discipline and as a corporate body of disciplining ourselves. And I put it this way in your worship guide so you can follow along with me hopefully here in the back section where there's an outline laid out. This main idea that because God sometimes, I don't know that He does this all the time, but because He sometimes withholds blessings for His people where unrepentance abides, and holiness is lacking, we should discipline ourselves as He directs us to. Okay? Let's try to walk through that a bit. Right away we can see there's quite a few application points, actually. Joshua, we see from the beginning, is uh, prone here to blame God for setbacks, just like we are in our lives. Right? Things start going the opposite way. They're charging forward before this. And all of a sudden, they hit a setback. They hit a roadblock. And what's Joshua's response? Just like us, when we hit setbacks individually or setbacks as a church body, he wants to look to the Lord, blame it on the Lord instead of looking to himself and to his own people. We can sympathize as well, at least I can, with Achan. I mean, what's the big deal? They just took a few things. They were going to kind of be left behind anyway. Maybe nobody's even going to notice these items. Everybody's not taking them. It's just him. He's just one person. How can that really make a big difference? How does it really affect anything? And we can probably connect and relate to the people of God here. In that, in our time and in our place, we certainly wouldn't want to take up any physical force against anybody for some spiritual error. But we're reluctant in any way to live as God calls us as a church body in disciplining ourselves as a group and encouraging one another to walk in the grace and truth of our Lord in a way that builds True repentance and true desire for holiness. It doesn't sound tolerant. It doesn't fit with our culture that elevates. Let's let everybody go. Let everything happen however it would happen. Seems judgmental. Seems really harsh to think about any correction we would do of one another. If we take a minute and walk through this passage, I think what we will get is a better picture of who God is and how He works. 
it may not be the picture we want to have, we desire to have in our minds, but it's a biblical picture. And it's going to remind us that disciplining ourselves individually and as a church body is not just an optional thing. It's crucial. It's essential for our life as believers. Is this thing driving us all crazy? Do I need to do something here? Okay. Bugging, bugging me just a tad. There we go. Maybe that'll help. Need to build a little bit of groundwork before we quickly walk through a couple of points in this passage. First thing we see is God's judgment coming upon the people. And then we see Joshua's reaction to that. Take a look back with me at this Joshua passage. It shows us right off the bat that God's bringing some correction. We, we saw that a couple of weeks ago, that he brings correction upon and judgment upon the Canaanites who were in Jericho. That's a, a judgment of condemnation. Today we see him bringing a sort of judgment uh, on the people of God themselves, a corrective judgment. He's, he's an equal opportunity uh, judger of, his, uh, of the people. He's not just judging the Canaanites. He's going to judge his own folks. He's concerned about holiness in both places. Verse 12, it tells us of chapter 7. He's going to be with them no more unless they de- destroy the devoted things. That's a judgment he's making. There's, there's no other way to define it. Look at how Joshua reacts. Uh, some have suggested that Joshua really is, is on the wrong track from the beginning because instead of waiting for God to give him a specific mission, it doesn't say that God told him to go and take I, but he's kind of running out ahead of things a bit. Uh, some have suggested that. Others, maybe too, that he's got a little bit too much moxie coming out of the Jericho battle. They, they, they ran over, steamrolled Jericho, and so now he's sort of showing off by only sending 3,000 up to defeat I. I. I don't know that I see any of that in the passage, really. What we do see, though, is a whole lot of frustration, fear, and embarrassment. And interestingly enough, Joshua situates all of it in the midst of a prayer. Now, we know something's a little bit wrong with his prayers. I don't think he's wrong for praying, but something's a little bit wrong because verse 10, you see what the Lord says to this prayer? Get up. (laughs) Get up out of prayer. Quit praying. What's wrong in Joshua's prayer here? Well, one is filled with frustration. Look at verse 7. Lord, why did you put this people over the Jordan at all? Wouldn't we have been better off back over on the other side of Jordan? What's that sound like? You ever read through the book of Exodus? It sounds a lot like the way the Israelites had been thinking for now decades and decades. That when we get in a situation we don't like that's difficult, we wish we could be back in the other one. Instead of finding God's strength and God's power for me right now, right here, I just want to get out of it. God must have made a mistake. In bringing us here. So he's frustrated with God. Second thing we see is that he's fearful. Verse 5. Look at the people. It says in the last sentence of verse 5. And the hearts of the people melted and became like water. 
Do you recognize that phrase? The hearts of the people melted? It's the same phrase we've been reading in several chapters earlier in Joshua about the enemies of the people of God. That they're melting away because they realize God is with Israel and they're fearful. Here the people are melting away because they realize God's hand has been pulled back. He's removed some of his blessing and now their hearts are melting They've come off that mountaintop high, and now Joshua, sort of praying, I guess you'd say on their behalf, is filled with fear, or maybe we'd call it doubt. And we've probably all been there, haven't we? You come back from that spiritual retreat or mission trip where you've been on the mountaintop, and everything seems to be roses and beautiful colors, and then you hit that first difficulty in living that out each day. And all of a sudden, you're spinning. It happens at the other side of all kinds of wonderful opportunities. You maybe teach a, do a wonderful job teaching that Sunday school class with kids or adults. Or maybe you've done a, a great job and used to lead in a musical uh, element of the church life. Maybe you're helping and God has used you to make a hospitality environment for a wonderful church event. Maybe you've had a really rewarding prayer time. Maybe that fasting really felt like it took you to a new level spiritually. And then you get just the other side of it and you hit a wall and you knock back on your heels. I know about it because I'm there time and time again. We slip into fear. We slip into doubt often on the other side of some great spiritual working in our life. And then we see embarrassment. Embarrassment. Look at verse 9. Joshua says the Canaanites, all the inhabitants of the land, are going to hear about this. And what are you going to do for your name? Now, I think that's a little mixed with fear because part of their ability to win these battles is their intimidation factor. But he's also just, he's no longer as proud and as excited to be numbered among the people of God because they're not going forward in quite the way that they were before. See all that? God's judgment, Joshua's reaction. Well, in all of this, the key factor is not just what we learn from Joshua's response, but the fact that he's blaming God for all of this. Isn't that the target he has? God, why you got us in this situation? Why have you put us here? I'm frustrated. I'm fearful. I'm embarrassed. And God says to him, Joshua, this is on you and on your people. Look with me, and we'll dive into it just a little bit more. But verses 10 through 13 says to Joshua, get up. He says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed. They've taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have their belongings. And the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. The Lord God is saying, this is an internal issue for you all as the people of God. I'm still ready to go forward. It's where you all are relative to me. Let's take a moment to think about this, and let's remember as we do, you know, God is, this isn't about what kind of people the Israelites are or were. 
Remember, we've been seeing the last couple of weeks, one of the key characters is this lady, Rahab. She's a prostitute. God's not concerned about where they've been or what kind of people they are inherently. He's concerned and wants to welcome in all of us through grace to his family. But then inside the family, he's calling us to live by certain family conduct for his glory and for the family to be strong and to glorify him. Let's turn the corner here and start to look at what happens with Achan and how they respond to his sin. And I think we can all see, hopefully, and understand that today, the way that this carries over for us, we can apply it and consider it in the life of our church, is through this thing we call church discipline. It's kind of a harsh-sounding thing to even speak about, but maybe this will help to set it up a bit for you, and if you've been through our new members class, you've probably heard me share this before, but it's always helpful for me, the, the time that Muhammad Ali was taking this airplane flight, traveling to one of his boxing bouts, apparently, and he was brash and bold and confident, as you recall. And the stewardess got on the uh, intercom and reminded everybody on the plane they needed to get their seatbelt buckled. Well, Ali didn't care about that, and he wasn't going to listen to her. She announced it several more times and then eventually had to come over and get face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball with him, have a few words. She said, sir, you need to put on your seatbelt. Ali responded in his brash and bold way, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the stewardess, as all the rest of the plane looked on to see how she would respond, smiled and said, yeah, and Superman don't need no airplane, neither. We have, if we have come into the life of the church, God's people, the church body, His people today, we have acknowledged, in fact, if we've joined the church, we've stood up in front of the church and said that we're sinners desperately in need of mercy and grace, that we have no hope without God working in our lives, and we need His Holy Spirit to work in us. So we have said, I need an airplane. I cannot fly without one. And yet we find it so difficult to say, I need a seatbelt. I need a seatbelt to stay buckled into the plane. The passage certainly talks, and you can follow along in your outline if you want, about what's happening among the group versus the individual. Is there a responsibility that all of us have to to be seeking God in greater degrees and rejoicing more in His love and delighting more in who He is and finding greater satisfaction so that we are uh, resisting the kind of temptation that Achan falls into? That we're seeking to really respond to grace and seek holiness and have genuine repentance? Absolutely. We call to do that individually 100%. Do, do we read in Scripture that God actually steps in at places in our lives and brings His kind of direct correction? Absolutely. Hebrews chapter 12, we won't turn there, but it says that God disciplines those He loves. He corrects those that he cares for as a son. And it even says there, hey, 
what kind of father, what kind of parent doesn't discipline their child? How is it loving to not tell a child to stay out of the street and correct him if you need to? Or not touch that hot stove. We went to Hibachi Grill at Sticks last night. One of mine, after watching for, uh, you know, the chop, chop, chop for about half an hour and preparing all the food and seeing it getting cooked right there, walked over and you know what he did. Right on top of the hot grill. God disciplines as he desires, but he also calls us as a church body, spiritually, not with any kind of physical force again, to live in a way that we correct one another. Matthew chapter 18 talks about it. If you want to turn there, you can. Uh, those back in the peacemakers class have been looking at this the last few weeks, so this won't be new for you all. But Matthew 18, verse 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go to him. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Okay? This isn't just an individual matter anymore. It's a corporate thing. It's as a group. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother over. What's the goal? The goal isn't to make one another feel bad or condemn. The goal is that we are all... Uh, have places of need. We all need seatbelts, and we need somebody sometimes to come in and point out to us, you need to put your seatbelt on. It goes on here. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, the goal is that we would respond to that, that we would say, oh, goodness, you know, I didn't realize what I said was so harsh and hurtful to that person. Man, you know what? I actually have been going down a pathway in that area of my life. And thank you, brother, for caring enough to ask me about that issue, that you love me enough to ask me about it. The response is intended to be gracious and to yield repentance. But then it goes on in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jump back with me to Joshua chapter 7. Look at verse 15. God says to the people of God, And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he's done an outrageous thing in Israel. Let me close down our time with this. What seems outrageous to us? Seems outrageous to us is the fact that these people would do this to another one among their number. And this Old Testament reality, of course, we have to understand this is a nation state. They're in a time of war. Achan's basically committed a treasonous act. So we've got to put all that, some of that stuff and bracket it off. But the reality is that the outrageous thing is that Achan would walk in this pathway of really unrepentant sin. Now, you might say, wait a minute, he, he said that he did it. But I think that's why it has in the passage all that information about the tribe of this and the tribe of this and the tribe of this. He had all kinds of time to come forward. And instead, they did some process of selection. We don't even know how it was until they found out it was him. And only then, when he was caught, and that's that difference between sorrow and repentance. Only then when he's caught did he come forward with it. And it wasn't like he even needed the stuff. Did you read all the things they destroyed at the end? 
his sheep and oxen and so forth. And it wasn't like he didn't know that it was wrong. What had he done with all of the stuff? He buried it in his tent. It's a harsh passage for us to absorb. It's a harsh thing for us to think about our calling as a church. First of all, individually for each one of us to again be responding to God's grace, His Word, in a way that we're seeking out to live holy lives. That's that third membership question that we say, and it's one I struggle with every single week and every day of every week, that we would live lives that fit who Christ is. That's what we commit to as believers, as church members. And then there's that opportunity for us to be involved in one another's lives, hopefully spinning out of life groups and spinning out of small groups or just in individual relationships. We're involved with one another in a place where we can say, rather than even waiting on the other person to say it, we can say, hey, man, I invite you. I want you. I trust you. I know you love me. I want you to speak into my world. If you see something going on with me, I want you to say something to me. And I'll tell you right away, I might not respond the best way right off the bat, but I I know I need that. And even if somebody's not doing that, if we're headed headlong away from the Lord, headed over a cliff, it ain't gracious to be quiet and watch somebody walk right over it. We've had family members do it. We've all had friends do it. The loving thing is to speak, to speak. And sometimes we have to do that even as a church body. Well, it's crystal clear that this is the issue that's holding up what's happening with the people of God in the Old Testament. We won't read all of chapter 8. I'll spare you all that. But chapter 8, you know what happens. They go from defeat to tremendous success. What's the difference? The difference is that they've sought now to follow through with being a church body, with being a people of God who reverence and respect the holiness of God to such a degree that they're not only disciplining themselves individually, they're seeking to do that corporately. Hard passage to digest for us today, but a crucial one for us too as we as a church seek to go forward, seek to go forward in the mission that God has for us. Let's pray. Father, we do pray today and ask you that you'd allow us to receive uh, this, your word. And Lord, I pray that you would just bless us with whatever you have for each one of us to take away from it. And Lord, I pray uh, that you would allow us to be a congregation, starting with me, first and foremost, to, uh, Lord, walk with you. And respond to your love and your grace to us in a way that uh, we live lives that reflect you and your glory. And Lord, that uh, through that you would you would bless and you would move forward the things that you want to in our lives and through our church. And at the same time, Lord, we realize as a people, each one of us is prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love and we need a seatbelt. And so, Father, we pray that you would allow us to be open to that from one another, 
that you would allow all of us to practice the things we describe with an incredible measure of grace, removing the log from our own eye before we would ever think about speaking to a brother or sister about the speck in their eye. And Lord, we pray as you do this work of discipline in us individually and as a group body that we'd grow and be a reflection of your glory, that your name would be uplifted and honored in our community as people see uh, not just the message proclaimed, but the message believed, the message embraced, and the message lived out. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.